Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, the fiasco at Netball Australia has given a lot of people a satisfying dose of schadenfreude today. If you want to go woke, you better be prepared to go broke. And you don't get much broker than a sporting administration that is $11 million in debt and has just effectively turned down an offer of $15 million in free money over four years. In one weekend, Netball Australia has gone from having a path out of dire financial circumstances to the very real prospect of going broke within the next year. And all because one player wanted to go woke. Or did she? It all starts with this comment from pioneering West Australian mining magnate, Lang Hancock. The ones that are no good to themselves and can't accept things, the half-caste, and this is where most of the trouble comes, I would dope the water up so that they were sterile and would breed themselves out in future, and that would solve the problem. Even when it was originally broadcast in 1984, that quote was widely considered repulsive. And that should have been the end of it. Australia's moved on from all that, right? Since Lang Hancock uttered that offensive remark, Australia has had the, de the Deaths in Custody Royal Commission, the Bringing Them Home report into the Stolen Generations, and the endless apologies, not to mention the Aboriginal flag flying everywhere, welcomes to country at even the most trivial events, and repeated tributes to Aboriginal culture by every sporting code in the nation. But what all this remorse about our supposedly dark past has done is encourage a victim mentality among the Indigenous. This in turn creates an entirely new, some might say mind-numbingly self-indulgent problem. The demand for racism has now far exceeded supply. So finding examples of it requires a bit of imagination. Just like Lang Hancock mined the hills of the Hammersley Ranges in Western Australia, the modern indigenous industry mines our history, looking for nuggets of racism to dig up. Unlike Hancock's efforts though, finding examples of racism from our past don't make the nation any richer. In fact, we are all poorer for the absurd fact that Hancock's racist comment from 40 years ago has somehow, unbelievably, scuttled the future prospects of one of Australia's most important sports administrations. To see where this really started, started let's have a look at what ABC 730 broadcast two weeks ago on October 11, celebrating the selection of Donnell Wallum, Donnell Wallum to the Diamonds, the national netball team. Once it kind of sunk in, I was like really happy. I couldn't stop smiling and, you know, tears were flowing. Me, I just couldn't stop crying and I looked at her father and he was crying and then the rest of the kids, I was saying, Mum, stop it. I said, I can't, I can't. I'm so happy for her. Very, very proud. So far, so good, right? Hardworking girl from a battler family finds her calling in sport becomes professional when she gets signed up to a team in Leeds in the UK, and while she's there, gets called up to represent her country, bringing tears of joy from the parents who no doubt spent years as her main support team as she pursued her dream. 
This is the sort of story that makes sport so inspiring. What more does it need? Uh, don't answer that, because the ABC has answered it for you. What this story needs is some racism. Being only the third First Nations athlete, um, you know, to make it this far, it tells me, you know, there are roadblocks, you know, in the pathways we've got in place now. So I think what we can do is just like, you know, really educate ourselves to see why, um, why we don't have these kids coming through, what's stopping them. What's stopping them? That's a bit of a loaded question, isn't it? Of course, the implied answer, because this is the ABC we're talking about here, is white racism. Poor Indigenous kids can't get ahead because white folks are racist. The more honest answer, though, is that many of our Indigenous brothers and sisters can't dream of a better life, let alone pursue one, because of self-inflicted violence, dysfunction and despair. It's not white racism holding them back, but a lack of education, job opportunities and supportive families in outback so-called communities, some of which are violent hellholes that are out of sight and out of mind to woke academics and inner city protesters. That footage of Wallum complaining about the lack of opportunity for Indigenous kids is so standard, so textbook, that I suspect she went along with it out of a feeling of obligation. I mean, she's an Indigenous international sports star now. Standing up against racism is part of the job description, right? And Wallum thought she'd found a gold example of it in Netball Australia's new $15 million sponsor, Hancock Prospecting, run by Lang's daughter, Gina Reinhardt. A week after that report on the ABC, Wallum's mentor, former World Cup winning netballer Sharon Finnan White, was quoted saying that Wallum wanted Gina Reinhardt to, quote, denounce her father's words, make a statement in public. I think that would be a really good news story for Mrs. Reinhardt, unquote. Well, Reinhardt decided she would be the judge of what a good news story is and released a statement on Saturday explaining that there are more effective ways to help the Indigenous than through people who were more concerned with, quote, virtue signalling and self-publicity, unquote. Ouch. Hancock listed the many ways she already helps Indigenous people. Then, yesterday, she lobbed a million dollars at Perth's annual telethon event to raise money for sick kids. Word is that Wallum is devastated that Netball Australia is now reeling financially and that this has brought unwanted attention to her. To be honest, I feel sorry for her. She didn't do anything worse than, say, Sydney Swans AFL star Adam Goods did when he vilified a 13-year-old girl for a racist remark in 2013. The next year, he was named Australian of the Year and a movie was made about his struggles against racism in 2019. Wallum, by contrast, is being partly blamed for sending an entire sport broke. It's an unpredictable road, playing the victim. Sports stars would be on much safer ground if they just shut up and let their playing do the talking. Well, here's an interesting experiment we can all try. Post a factual statement on a social media platform like, say, Twitter, that you know will trigger the platform's vigilant sensors. 
I'll let you decide what those triggers might be, but they're pretty obvious. Next, post an identical statement on other platforms like Facebook and Instagram. Then sit back and watch which of the platforms is most neurotic about users making statements of fact. I did this myself last week and discovered, not to my surprise, that, that Twitter is the platform par excellence of preventing publication. While the Twitter ecosystem seems to thrive on abuse and vitriol, the people employed as the platform's gatekeepers have a distinct aversion to any plain facts that favor a conservative or individualistic perspective. Well, that might not be for too long. Elon Musk is getting closer and closer to taking over the company and he has promised he will sack three quarters of the staff. Three quarters. Of course, if those sacked employees have complaints, they will pres presumably be free to express them on Twitter, where there will be less censorship than there is today. The irony of this will be lost on them, but not on my next guest, Queensland law academic, James Allen. James, welcome. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for having me. James, are you excited to see a blossoming of free speech on Twitter when Elon Musk takes over? Well, you have to admit, it's nice for someone with that amount of money to, to blow 50 billion on uh, Twitter because you figure he's not making money on this investment, but he is going to make it a little bit freer. And I'm hoping he releases the algorithm that's been in play. I'm pretty sure they're busy hiding it right now, but we, we want to know how, how game the system was and how much they they uh, pushed the left-wing uh, point of view. I'm sort of marveling that he found a quarter of them he could keep in their jobs. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm surprised it was that high, really. <laughs> I think they all work in the cafeteria. Yeah, the cafeteria, you know, the <laughs> delivery truck guys. <laughs> yeah, goodness knows what they're delivering. But anyway, we'll, I mean, we'll get back to the algorithms, and algorithms in a minute. But let's just talk about what effect these, these platforms have. Big tech has already admitted, of course, that it buried the Hunter Biden laptop story before the 2020 US presidential election, which arguably significantly affected the outcome. Will Musk's well, liberation- based on some polling, who, who believes polls, but based on some polling, it was an, it, it changed enough, enough people said they would have voted the other way, that you can retrospectively say it, it swung the election. Indeed. But who knows, yeah. who knows? But they, you know, they they are living off the section, section 230 protection, which treats them as not a publisher, but as a platform. But when you start editing which views go in and which don't, you're a publisher. And so you should be open to all the same sort of uh, libel and defamation rules as, you know, the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. They're not. So, so, so can you just, to, just for the viewers, can you explain what Section 230 does? What, what? Well, it's a protection that sort of, in order to let the uh, internet take off, they, they got this special protection, which, which sort of allows them not to be treated as a regular publisher. So... You know, the, the conceit was that they would just be posting everyone's views in a sort of homage to the sort of free market and free expression of ideas. But it's all been captured by one point of view. They've, they've done studies that show that uh, people who post on Twitter, they're so far left wing that they equate to the most left wing district in Congress out of all, I don't know, 430 of them. You know, so they're, it's an incredibly left wing echo chamber. Now, in part, we just assume that's the sort of people who, who deal in Twitter. But it now looks like to, also that the big tech sort of gives them a little boost through algorithms, through bots. And 
No, he's an unlikely sort of free speech warrior, Elon Musk, but he can't make it worse. So at the very least, he can't make it worse and he's probably going to make it better. And uh, he went to my university at Queens for a year so I can reflect uh, (laughs) in his glory to a diminished extent. He's he's a Canadian Uh, as well as a South African. Well, there you go, fellow freedom warriors. Well, I mean, it's the actual it's the actual existence of the algorithms that spoils the Section 230 protection, doesn't it? Because Section 230 implies that they are in different publishers like a like a phone company. But the mere presence of these algorithms proves that they're not, don't, doesn't it? Well, it's good. I mean, it's a powerful argument. And people are finally starting to take the big tech to court. If Republicans manage to take both houses in a couple of weeks, I think they will. I don't, I don't trust the sort of messaging you're getting out of the media. I think it's going to be a, a bit of a Republican wave, might even be a tsunami. But, you know, Mitch McConnell and some of the Republicans are so weak, surely they'll start taking action against big tech because it's like the Praetorian Guard for the Democrats. So they, they're going to start bringing in the big players in big tech. You know, they can maybe pass, a, I mean, Biden will, will veto it, but make him veto it. They can bring in the common carrier type rules. Uh, if they opened up lawsuits against big tech, they'd be bankrupt. Well, there are already some big cases against big tech. Are you saying, well, let's talk about the midterms anyway. Uh, what are the likelihood of now of the Republicans getting both houses, you think? Well, I, a month ago when everyone was saying, the, you know, the Dems were going to do just fine and they'd all everything had swung back because of the abortion decision, I wrote a piece in The Spectator saying the Republicans would uh, pick up net two or three in the Senate. Uh, I think it's looking more and more like I'm right now. Uh, so it's a it's a bad election year for the Republicans. There's 35 Senate seats up, but 21 of them are presently held by the Republicans, 14 by the Dems. So, you know, it's a, it's a one third of the Senate up each time. And of those, so there's only 14 Democrat seats in play, and all of them are in states that uh, Biden won in 2020. So it's a brutal senatorial map. Having said that, uh, the Republicans now look like they're they're going to win Ohio and they're going to win Wisconsin. So the only current Republican Senate seat that's in danger is Pennsylvania. And I think Dr. Oz is going to take that because although he's a bit of a, a flaky guy and not the greatest candidate, uh, his, his opponent is completely crazy, the Dem Fetterman. So then you start looking at the Democrat seats. Uh, well, they're really in trouble in Nevada. They're really in trouble in Arizona. They're really in trouble in Georgia. Um, And they're a little bit of danger even in New Hampshire. If the Republicans take one of those and hold all of theirs, they have the Senate. If they take two, and and I've made a bet that Herschel Walker's going to win Georgia with a friend in Canada. I think the Nevada race is going to go Republican. And I think the astronaut is going to lose in Arizona. So that's a net three. So we'll see. Well, it's it's certainly, you know, Right now, the polls are showing that the governor of New York, you can't, other than California, you can't get more left-wing than New York. The Democrat governor's tied or behind the hit, her Republican uh, challenger. So the gubernatorial races are, are starting to move Republican too. Well, Big it time. seems, yeah, there's a lot at play, but just bringing it back to big tech, what will be the implications for them? Will we see the end of their hegemony? That's what I want to know. Well, as long as Biden's uh, president, you won't pass any laws because he'll veto it. However, it'll be embarrassing for him to veto it. So if, if McConnell gets his act together, 
they can start passing laws that uh, basically promote free speech and force the Democrat president to veto it. Um, they can also hold hearings. They can do to the Democrats, because the Democrats have basically breached all these conventions with all with their sort of politicized show trial House impeachments, you know, the two ridiculous impeachments. Well, they, they can start, to, they can go after Fauci. Uh, they can go after the former FBI and those 51 intelligence officers who signed that letter just before the last election saying the laptop was Russian. It had, every, it had all the, they called it earmarks, but they're illiterate. They meant hallmarks of Russian uh, disinformation. Um, well, no, it, it actually was true. And so I would call in all 51 of those uh, CIA, FBI agents, some of most of them retired now. Um, and so there's all sorts of things they can do in the House and the Senate with hearings. It, you know, basically, now that the rules of the game are, we're just going to go after the opponents, which is the sort of way the Dems have played this game. The Republicans have to play the same way back. They cannot be weak about this. No, they, they can't. You know, I mean, things will only get better. If but tough. the way, but James, the way you are describing it, 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 you and I are unlikely to disagree on on those developments. If the if the the House, dominated by Republicans, went after all those security officers and Biden himself for an impeachment, but. Has American politics gone too far down that partisan road? Uh, will the uh, will will the entrenched Democrats just respond in kind? Well, the Democrat, in my view, the Democrats started it, and here's the typical line you hear from establishment Republicans: "We have to be better than they are." That's a loser strategy in politics. No evolutionary psychology, evolution generally, game theory. The, the successful approach in life is to be nice until the people on the other side aren't nice, and then you reciprocate. Now, if you never reciprocate, you're just a mug. And so the Republicans have to reciprocate. They have to go after the Dems. And once they've done it, then they can say, okay, look, let's go back to having the nice conventions. Yeah. Um, I just think that's the way they're going to have to behave. They're going to, I, I think there's a, some of the, I mean, I don't think it's worthwhile impeaching Biden. But there's a certain school of Republicans who think, given the two incredibly implausible impeachments against Trump, impeach the guy. The problem is you don't really want to take him out as president. I mean, he's so bad. What's the upside for you? So leave him in for two more years. Yeah. You know, his, yep. his approval rating is in the low 40s, high 30s. Yeah, yeah. In other words, that, well that's, below that's when he's that's when he's awake. Um, I saw him fall asleep. When in he's the turning the right way, <laughs> incoherent. Yeah, yeah. And, and here's a, here's another great one. So they've got the worst inflation in 40 years. Um, petrol or gas prices are through the roof. They've got four million people have come into the border, and they asked Biden, you know what what he, you know his top priority was, and it's it's sort of to make life easier for people who want to transition this for the transgender movement. Oh. So you know your top priority is to allow 14 year olds to you know have their reproductive organs cut off. At least wait till they're 18. And how is that a top priority when the entire country is in, you know, it's, it's about the worst we've seen the U.S. since Jimmy Carter? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, speaking of the worst we've seen, let's move over to Britain now. Liz Truss is gone. And Boris, who's the last prime minister to be duly elected by the British people, has ruled out throwing his hat in the ring to take back 10 Downing Street. What happened to the will of the people in Britain, James? forget the will of the people. How about the will of the Tory party who did not want Sunak? And so, you know, the 
you know, Conrad Black just wrote an article, the former proprietor of the Telegraph. He's Canadian, British, American sort of. And uh, he said the sick democracies in the Western world right now are the U.S., Britain and Canada. And it's partly the sickness is playing out on the right side of politics. The political class is not representing their voters. We're seeing that. With, now, in the U.S., it's being fixed a bit because their system allows uh, freelance Republicans to run against the establishment and win. And you'll, all of those establishment uh, sort of types were losing to Trump sort of endorsed Senate types. So you, there's, a, there's an avenue in the U.S. In Britain, you know, it's only in 2019 they ran on a low tax, stop immigration. Well, the immigration has never been worse. Illegal immigration under Boris and the Tories have never been worse. And it's never been higher. And it was supposed to be low tax. It's the highest taxing, highest spending government. It's exactly like Morrison and Frydenberg. Like, well, how speaking, can the con coalition... Well, well, speaking of Australia then, how did Australia escape, uh, not make the cut for Conrad, Bragg, uh, Conrad Black's list? I mean, we're almost as bad democratically. I think he just, think he just forgot. We're, so, we're, you know, we're not in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah. I mean, I mean how, well, look, that's look the problem the, for Mr. Dutton. Yes. How do, how do you criticise Labour on any front when you ran the biggest taxing, biggest spending government you know, since the war? Don't tell me Frydenberg was a good treasurer. And the excuse is, oh, we had to do it because of the pandemic. No, that is a complete lie. You shouldn't let people get away with that. We handled the pandemic horribly. Leave aside the brutal inroads on our rights and freedoms. Had we gone down the Swedish road, we would have fewer excess deaths. So if you look at the baseline expected number of deaths, we are doing worse than Sweden. It's partly because of the way we've categorized COVID deaths. And it's partly because the brutal lockdowns have led to all sorts of people dying, not from COVID. And, you know, and they were and they're much younger people. Well, that's so right. I, I, yeah. I get infuriated about the way we handled COVID. It was so illiberal and we sacrificed a whole generation of young people. We sold them down the river so that well-off civil servants who have nice big houses could stay at home and work on their computers. Small yeah. businesses sold down the river. And, you know, so well, James, I don't one know how day. you fix that. <laughs> well, apologies would be a would be a good start, but uh, a, a tr that's perhaps the, a Trump-like figure. That's what the new figure. premier in Alberta did. The ex yeah, exactly. The new premier in Alberta. She apologized. That that's right. That was. Yeah. She said, I mean, "We made a terrible mistake." Yeah. Imagine you the popularity of a new politician who said that in Australia. No. James. No. James, no. we've run Wouldn't out of time. Great? We've run out of time. So, but okay. thanks so much for your time, James. And I thank you, and I'll take you up on that beer. Yes. <laughs> See you soon. Good on you, James. Thank you. That's Queensland University Law Professor James Allen. Now, is it possible to be both overweight and have the weight-reducing mental condition anorexia nervosa at the same time? Well, surprisingly, it is, but on two conditions. You put quote marks around the word overweight and you add the word atypical to the mental condition. And hey presto, overweight no longer means overweight and anorexia nervosa isn't anorexia nervosa. But other than that, it's all perfectly scientific. Naturally, this exciting new development was reported in the New York Times, which managed to actually find a patient of this paradoxical combination of ailments. Under the headline, 
You don't look anorexic. The Times earnestly describes how Sharon Maxwell, a young woman who only appears quote unquote overweight, but apparently still suffers from the same dietary obsessions as people who live on boiled lettuce. How Maxwell manages to look instead like a person who eats chocolate cakes between snacks isn't explained. The New York Times author spends thousands of words legitimizing Maxwell's condition, delving into the history of eating disorders and quoting experts whose careers rely on women like Maxwell developing neuroses that require long stays in expensive treatment facilities that somehow never cure the condition. The author cites unnamed research that found up to 4.9% of women have this atypical anorexia nervosa which is more than men. Yeah, hold the front page. But then she says, quote, for non-binary people, the number jumps to as high as 7.5%, unquote. Well, that makes sense. If you think you can invent a new gender for yourself, then you're not going to have much trouble defining yourself as an overweight anorexic. Maxwell too seems a bit confused. She is described as being both ashamed of her body and defiantly unapologetic, which is the definitively woke state of mind these days. That's the benefit of being woke. There will always be a therapist or sociologist who, for a fee, will explain that your inadequacies are not your fault and that you don't need to, don't need to apologize for being you, even if you are unhealthily overweight. And if you're really, really unapologetic, then the New York Times will come and do a feature story on you. Well, now let's bring in Gideon Rosner from the Institute of Public Affairs to discuss some of the more egregious faux pas being conducted by our woke leaders. Gideon, welcome. Great to be back, my friend. Great to be back. First, let's talk about Green Senator Lydia Thorpe failing to disclose her relationship with a bikey boss while she was on a law enforcement committee. Gideon, what's more surprising about this, that Thorpe was having an affair with a bikey or that she was sitting on a committee deliberating about law enforcement? Uh, look, the most surprising thing about all of this is this is what Adam Bant sacks her for. And I mean, I, mean, I say sacked, you know, in a very loose uh, way because, of course, she's still in the Senate. She still uh, has carriage of the portfolios that she's been given by Adam Bant. She's lost her position as deputy Senate leader. I'm not sure how salaried it was or how prestigious a position that was. But nevertheless, this is the thing that Adam Bant felt like he had to act on, the, the, this biking uh, gang thing, not the fact that she went into Parliament saying that she didn't support the very institution and, and, and the institutions underpinning it, not the fact that she's been giving car crash interviews with even sympathetic formats like the project about colonisation and how she really is just swearing her allegiance to the Queen in order to bring the whole system down, man. Uh, I, I just find it amazing that this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. The other cute I think, thing about this story is on one of the, the, the newspaper articles I saw about this scandal, there was a picture of the bikey boss in question and he had some sort of confederate patch on his bikey jacket. Now, Lydia Thorpe has slagged off symbolism, imagery, emblems and so on for a lot less than a Confederate logo. For her, the Australian flag uh, is hateful and racist and has all sorts of baggage. I don't know how she got past the big Confederate patch on this bloke's jacket, if indeed he, he had it on at the time uh, they were allegedly having an affair. So, look, the whole thing is, 
is uh, I, I, I'm not surprised that this has happened, but what I am surprised is that this is what has finally forced Adam's ba Adam Bain's hand in relation to this, this uh, very problematic character. Well, apparently she says now, quote, she's no longer involved with that world. <laughs> Are we meant to be relieved by her no. saying that? Is that a relief to you, Gideon? Well, I suppose it is from a law enforcement point of view and in, in relation to the committees that she, she sat on. But uh, look, I guess we'll, we'll have to take her world forward. But again, this is uh, not, you know, somebody down at the pub. This is not your garden variety lefty on Radio National or something. This is a member of the Australian Senate. Uh, the fact that they were involved with that world to begin with should raise red flags. But of course, it's not up to you or I or anybody else to remove Lydia Thorpe. It's up to the people uh, who vote for her. And unfortunately, I don't think this will move the dial much in relation to Greens voters because they don't seem to take notice of anything that's going on. So why would they care about this? Has there anyone, has there ever been anyone so bad in the Australian Senate? I mean, she really does lower the bar, doesn't she? Oh, look, there have been plenty of bad people in the, in the Australian Senate. A lot of people in this Senate who I don't have a lot of time for. Jackie Lambie, for example. I mean, there are all sorts of colourful characters. But look, that is democracy. In fact, look, I'm a bit unpopular with this view, but I actually think we need more out there characters in Parliament. We need to actually have more minor parties, even minor parties we really, really, really don't like. What I would like to see is uh, a system like they have, for example, in Israel, which is completely purely proportional representation, one vote, one value, with a very, very low barrier to entry. Because I think more than, you know, it's, as, as fun as it is for us to sit here and have a chuckle about Lydia Thorpe and the Greens, uh, our major, uh, the, the major structural problem with politics in Australia is that fundamentally we only have one political party in the main. It's called the Canberra Party, and it doesn't matter, matter whether it's the blue team or the red team riding around in chauffeured cars and walking on blue carpet. Uh, it, 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 we get the same results either way. I, I would like to see more nutbags in Parliament. I really would. Throw the, throw, throw the gates open, because for every Lydia Thorpe uh, and Adam Band and, and person like that we might have in Parliament, uh, under a proportional representation system, we might get another David Lindbrick or David Lionhelm or Bob Day or any of the rip snorters who've actually, uh, unlike most politicians, in living memory stood up for freedom, stood up for fundamental rights and stood up when it's difficult and when it mattered and when, when they were the only people doing it. So, uh, look, I'll take all the Lydia Thorpes in the world if we get some good people in there as well to be voices for things that we care about and we believe uh, as people who still subscribe to the values of conservatism, libertarianism and smaller liberalism. Well said, Gideon. I mean, if for all her faults, at least you know what she stands for, you know, which is Correct. more than you can say for a lot of professional politicians. I'll applaud her, I'll yeah. applaud her for being honest. You know, what you see is what you get, minus a few problematic alleged relationships with some shady, uh, allegedly shady uh, figures. But uh, for all that, uh, I, I have more respect for somebody like Lydia Thorpe, who actually has views problematic and difficult and crazy as they are in a lot of cases, but at least she ventilates them sort of openly. I take her over somebody like a Penny Wong or something who you really can't tell uh, what, how close her inner and outer voice is on most days of the week. Exactly. Uh, you know, again, I don't care if somebody has funky views, but let's have some honest debate, please. Well, talk about honest debate. Let's talk about, let's switch to Premier Dan Andrews. He's shown a lot Ooh. of difficulty in the past uh, simply running things. I mean, he couldn't run a quarantine program that, that without it killing 800 people. He can't build infrastructure without racking up hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. What makes him think he can run the state's electricity network and also convert it into a renewable system? <laughs> 
Well, they can't. Nobody can because they are relying on technology that is either in its infancy or is manifestly inadequate. We know that. We know that despite billions and billions of dollars worth of investment going back all the way to when John Howard was in the lodge, renewables still account for a tiny percentage of our electricity needs. We know they cannot provide power self-evidently when sun doesn't shine and wind doesn't blow. We know that storage and batteries and, and that sort of solution to that problem is non-existent the extent it exists at all. And, and even if it was viable, it would be either too expensive or require resources like lithium and copper and so on that just don't exist in the amount that we need them for. We know that green hydrogen is at best, at best in its very, very early development. We certainly cannot design a power system around it. And of course, we know that when services are provided by the government, including basic utilities, uh, they are generally of worse quality uh, and don't serve customers well. I mean, I'm, I'm not old enough to remember telecom, uh, which was a, a crap service where, that would take you months and months and months to get a phone line installed. Uh, this idea that we can nationalise uh, electricity providers and get a better result is fanciful. But what I will say, though, is it's not like we have a completely private market at the moment. We have something far from it. This is what opponents of privatisation and privately held electricity assets don't understand. There's still an enormous amount of regulation in the sector and there's still enormous distortions to the sector for the things I've just outlined, namely the fact that we're cramming the system with windmills and solar panels which don't work. Uh, what I'd like to see is a completely technologically agnostic, completely competitive, completely free market uh, playing field where any source of power can be built, whether it be coal, nuclear, gas, whatever, uh, and let the market decide. That is not the system we have. We have a system where instead of having a nationalised electricity uh, sector, we have a, a effectively a crony capitalist system where energy companies, retailers and wholesalers make more money. Uh, their business model is more contingent on securing favourable regulations and favourable subsidies than it is on serving their customers. The system's already broke, but to break it more by nationalising it is obviously <laughs> not the answer. But this is Dan we're talking about, the great socialist experimenter. Exactly. Well, I noticed that he conveniently blamed private enterprise for high prices. That's, that's getting it completely upside down. I mean, he can't solve the price problem by nationalising it. It's just not going to happen, is it? No, it's not. And look, let's be very clear. The problems with high electricity prices in Australia are caused by government intervention over a very long time. Yes, uh, most states have privatised the electricity system uh, and the energy market in some respects. But again, I make the point, the system is so clouded with distortions, with subsidies, with regulations, with the fact that some modes of power generation like nuclear are outright banned by the federal environmental, environmental diversity, uh, environmental protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. That's always a difficult one uh, to pronounce. Uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is we have expensive electricity because nobody in their right mind would invest in assets that actually generate power because there is too much regulatory risk. And and, and I've, look, as, as much as I want to lift the ban on nuclear power, and a lot of people see that as a solution, my preferred uh, solution would be to just focus on gas and coal, to take the foot off government, off the throat of providers of those modes of power generation and let them rip and let us do what we do and do well. Because the fundamental fact is, Fred, that we could be to cheap energy in Australia what, the chi what China is to cheap labour. Uh, that is our natural competitive advantage and we are squandering it because we want to feel good uh, by building windmills. Uh, <laughs> that's not good enough and it's not serving us well and it is not making the most of the economic opportunity that God has bestowed on this country. 
Now, let's talk about one of the issues that uh, the two major parties actually uh, differ on in Victoria. It's the suburban Ooh. rail loop, which is uh, Dan's Ooh. next big infrastructure project. The coalition has said they, they won't back it, but Dan's backing it to the hilt. And now he's got some very serious uh, support from Federal Finance Minister Katie Gallagher. She proposes to co-fund it with the government. And she has said today, quote, there is a very detailed business case that underpins this project and a very positive cost-benefit ratio for the project, unquote. Now, Gideon, I noticed she didn't use the word profit. It's not going to make one, is it? No, it's not. And look, some infrastructure doesn't uh, turn a profit. Some infrastructure funded by government is there to address market failure, i.e. things that the, the private sector won't provide on its own. That's all, you know, fair enough. But in this case, this is a, an enormously costly project for uh, what I see as very little gain. I mean, the, the cost it will take for stage one of the project alone are, are something in the order of billions and billions and billions of dollars. Now, Victoria just cannot afford spending outlays like this anymore. The state is flat broke. In fact, research from the IPA that has been done recently by my colleagues Dan Wild and Kevin Yao indicates that Victoria performs by far the worst on a range of economic indicators, all the vital ones. It's the highest taxing state, the highest spending state, uh, the, the state with the highest debt, the highest deficit, the highest public sector payroll and the, and the, and the fastest uh, growing uh, rate of government expenditure. We cannot afford vanity projects uh, like this. And I must say, you know, you and I sit here uh, and people like us sit here and talk about the fact that Matthew Guy has not differentiated himself enough on things with the incumbent government. But on this, he is on the, on the right track. He has uh, courageously made the decision to announce the scrapping of that policy. And I think that will actually work in his favour. I really do. So is the message getting through, especially those details that you just listed that the IPA has found, is the message getting through? Is, is Matthew Guy making some, uh, having an effect and is Dan still a shoe-in to win? Look, I, I've never said that Dan is a shoe-in. I've always said that anything can happen. I've said that Dan will probably win and I still suspect he will. But again, the number one thing I'm asked by people on the street or on air and all sorts of other things is, will Dan really win? And I say, you know, probably. But again, as I've said on your show before, uh, nobody expected Jeff to lose in 1999. Nobody expected Ted to win in 2010. In both, both cases, the incumbent leaders were seen as arrogant, out of touch. They'd been there too long. Uh, in the case of Jeff Kennett, unfairly, in my view, there were allegations of impropriety in office and so on. And I think similar to 1999, we're going to see some seats change hands that people have not factored in and aren't paying attention to at all. Uh, in, the, in regional Victoria, we may see a, a number of seats flip because they got it pretty tough during COVID lockdowns. They were not the laptop class in the main in these areas. They got locked down despite most of the cases, uh, the fact that most of the cases were in the city. Uh, and also, I think we're gonna, we might see a few competitive, what I call maroon independents in the outer west and outer north of Melbourne, uh, places like Point Cook, Werribee, Mulgrave, not in the west or the north, but in the southeast, uh, that is looking like an interesting competition with people lining up to try to defeat Dan Andrews in his own seat. Uh, never forget that nobody was really paying attention to Fowler when Di Lee was running, but, uh, but that was one of the greatest upsets of the 20, of this year's federal election, the fact that Di Lee, a right-leaning independent, knocked off Christina Keneally in an ultra-safe 
Labor seat. Now, if Matthew Guy can pick up a few seats in the country, if he can hold the seats uh, that are at risk from Teals and all sorts of other characters, and if there are a few maroon independents, maybe we'll see a Matthew Guy minority government. I think it's it's a long shot, but stranger things have happened. So look, while Matthew Guy has not gone as far on policy issues as us true believers would have liked him to, uh, it is a mistake to write off the Liberals, much as we might think that they have let the side down and so on, uh, I think it still is winnable for them. And look, a lot can happen in a little while. Don't forget, Fred, as well, people don't really engage with state politics until a few weeks before they vote. Uh, so I think there will still be a lot of people who are undecided uh, heading into the last week of November. Well, that's a lot of cause for optimism. Now, just before you go, uh, I know this topic's very um, close to you because you were such an adamant and early emphatic voice against the lockdowns. There's a piece in The Age today from The New York Times, and it says in a, in a kind of lighthearted style that the pandemic has increased what it calls social anxiety. Um, and it's it, particularly in relation to teenagers. Now, weren't, weren't you warning about this two years ago? I mean, isn't it a bit late to be kind of softening the, trying to soften the, uh, the overall effect of the lockdown at this late stage? You know, it's amazing to see people coming out of the woodwork now saying lockdowns were inappropriate, that they hurt people more than they saved lives, that border closure is wrong, that the closure of schools was especially wrong. And this was these were all things that Joe Hildebrand wrote a great piece about on news.com.au over the weekend uh, based on the Shergold report, which came out very recently, which hit all those things in very stark uh, language. Look, the, the, the thing is, I, I, I refuse to believe that these consequences weren't obvious to people who uh, who really would have sat down and thought about what they were doing. I mean, closing school for, schools for two years, locking people in their own homes for 23 hours a day, kicking people out of work, stop dividing families at state borders. Anybody with half a brain would have told you that this would have disastrous results economically, societally, societally psychologically, in terms of our culture, our soul, our spirit in this country. Uh, but we're all, but not all of us, but mo uh, most of the country for the most part, or at least people in positions of power and influence were hit with this uh, wave of state-sponsored hypochondria. It's very <laughs> cute now to rewrite history, but, you know, the, those of us who came out early against the lockdowns were rubbished and called granny killers and all sorts of other silly things. Um, I, I take no pleasure in the fact that we were right, because even I underestimated how serious the uh, results of that grand experiment in government authoritarianism was. And what I really, really uh, I'm concerned about is that there doesn't seem to be enough people saying never again. And I, uh, with some cultural uh, and family background license, use those words very, very deliberately. Never, never, never again. Well said, Gideon Rosner. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Keep up the good fight, my friend. And you too, Gideon. That's Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne. And just before I go, as I discussed with Professor James Allen earlier, the midterm elections are due in the United States in two weeks. And the cycle is progressing as predictably as usual. But it's all a bit lame. Veteran Washington Post journalist Bob Woodward has tried to throw in an October surprise, the standard news sensation that is timed to swing the result of a November election. Except his November surprise is a bit of a yawn. The headline reads, The Trump Tapes, 20 interviews that show why he is an unparalleled danger. 
more of an unparalleled danger than Joe Biden, who actually fell asleep during a TV interview on the weekend? Neither Biden nor Trump is running in the midterms, of course, but the result will be a serious reflection on both their prospects come the presidential elections in two years. And of course, the polls, having hinted of positive signs for the Democrats for weeks, if not months, are finally showing that the Republicans are going to dominate. This is how the polling companies try to influence the outcome and then make themselves look reliable on the eve of the actual vote. And to think this is just the warm-up act, just wait till Trump announces he's running in 2024. The media is going to absolutely lose it. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow night at 8 for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH-TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine. Good night.